1: Just a quick warning that there will be many spoilers ahead for various episodes across all the seasons of Black Mirror. You have been warned. Hello, I'm James Eyde and welcome back to the dystopia that is Black Mirror Cracked. The podcast where we discuss and analyse all things Black Mirror. We've been off air for a little while, but I've been let out of my cage to bring you another fine episode, and today we have a special one. And I mean it, this one is going to be a brain burn. So settle in, get comfy, and let's begin. Rather than listen to the uneducated ramblings of an idiot like me, you have a treat, as today my guest is Professor of Philosophy at King's College in wilkes Pennsylvania, Dr. David Kyle Johnson, the author of a new book, Black Mirror and Philosophy dark reflections which is out now on amazon hello dr david kyle johnson and thank you for joining us today
0: hi james thanks for having me on you can just call me kyle that's great <laughs> thank you kyle um now you're not just a
1: lecturer and an author i understand you're also a massive geek could you tell me uh, and the listeners some of your favorite shows and films
0: uh, yeah, uh, so I'm sitting in my office right now, and I'm looking at a full collection of action figures from Doctor Who. <laughs> um, and, You've made uh, producer also- Dan
1: very happy.
0: <laughs> um, I have uh, every Doctor uh, in line with, in, with the current one in the TARDIS right now. Uh, I have a full collection of uh, Star Trek Enterprises, all the way from uh, the NX-01, all the way up to the j um
1: oh what the one-off special
0: yes Ooh. yes and uh, all all but the j are in scale the j is actually smaller because the j is like in reality is like two miles wide um <laughs> i've i've got star wars all over my office um i'm a big fan of an old sci-fi show a british sci-fi show called blake Seven. Oh, yes i know uh, it well <laughs> uh, yes uh, i have a lecture in, uh, in my sci-fi uh, sci-fi uh science fiction is philosophy course for the great courses i've got a lecture on um that compares Blake 7 to Firefly um, because they're actually very similar uh very similar shows but yeah. making and a making a similar point but almost in opposite directions anyway um yeah so like and then so all all versions of star trek uh rick and morty um um uh, looking around my office for more futurama <laughs> um I've, i'm i'm into I, I know like lord of the rings that's not uh, sci-fi obviously but i'm a big big fan of lord of the rings um the orville which is a new show by F- seth MacFarlane. i'm actually working on a book on that right now amazing um, so and yeah, i understand got,
1: you own a uniform for the orville
0: i do <laughs> uh, as, as you mentioned off air i've given lectures in my captain's uniform from the orville oh, um so yeah, I love the show, um, and I'm actually in the throes of working on the book. Uh, the due date for chapters uh, was actually yesterday essentially uh, for my <laughs> So I'm starting to go through uh, the chapters uh, now, so I'm really looking forward to it's such a great show. You'll definitely have uh, to send us a
1: picture of your office. I'll have to see all the beautiful geek paraphernalia. Uh-
0: Oh yeah, I will gladly do that.
1: (laughs) Fantastic. And we'll see if we can uh, include it in clip notes or something. Um, Brilliant. I think they're acceptable uh, geek credentials. Um, So could you also uh, give us your name and introduce yourself uh, and what you do? I know I've kind of covered that, but if there's anything I missed
0: there at all? Yeah. So uh, technically I am am a professor, not an associate professor anymore. I was recently promoted Um, and I've tried to get all my bios online updated, but it's impossible to keep up on it. And um, uh, for the book, so the, the project, obviously, I'm here to talk about is my my new book, uh, Black Mirror and Philosophy, Dark Reflections. Um, I am the editor of the book rather than the author. It is a collection of articles by a bunch of different authors. Mm-hmm. Um, we, It was my vision for the book, though, which is this makes it unlike other books in the series. There's a whole series with Wiley Blackwell of pop culture and philosophy books um, that usually just use the... Uh, pop culture in question is a springboard to talk about philosophical topics which is great and wonderful I've done the Inception book like that and I've contributed to over 20 of them it's awesome but for Black Mirror I wanted to do something different Mm -hmm. um, because I think that each episode of Black Mirror I think has a point Uh, that there's a point that's trying to be made, whether implicitly or explicitly. Sometimes Brooker says that he doesn't really want to preach and he doesn't have messages, but clearly Black Mirror episodes have messages. And so I wanted the book to devote a chapter to every single episode. So there is a chapter on, you know, uh, Hated in the Nation, and there's a chapter on... you know, bandersnatch in a chapter on 15 million merits and and all in order, right? Um, Where you're examining that particular episode and trying to identify either the moral of the story or the questions that it raises, that it raises, and then philosophically examine them. Uh, And so there are, uh, that would be 23 chapters like that, because we have chapter all the way through, we did it all the way through season five. That wasn't easy, by the way, because the book was actually done and then season five came out. So we had to backtrack and put three more chapters in, but we did it. (laughs) Um And then there are uh six chapters, seven if you count the conclusion, that are about the series as as a, as a whole uh, at the end oh, um, and uh, they all include stuff from all all five seasons um and so that's the that's the project. Um, I'm the co-author on a couple of chapters, uh, but of course, I was highly involved in the production of each chapter, so I know it very well um, and I just got through teaching a course uh here at King's College uh, where I used that book as the text and the course was the students go and watch the episode they write a reflection they come to class and all we do is discuss the episode they don't even read anything for that they just watch it and then they write and then be the they...
1: only kind of uh, course i would pass my god this knowledge <laughs> well... is useful <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, then and after there is some reading involved, after we discuss the episode, they go and read the chapter on the episode. And then we come back and discuss the chapters and the philosophical themes. And, you know, I'll, I'll give bits and pieces about different philosophies that were philosophers that were talked about and stuff. Um, and I just spent a whole semester doing that, just going back and forth between those. We read some of the, the overall chapters about the series as a whole uh, at the end but the students. From what I understand from my fellow professors, students all across campus are talking about it um, to their other professors and in their other classes. It really made an impact on them. Um, many students told me that it's made them think more and about more different things than any other class that they've taken. Um, and it wasn't even that hard of a class, right? Like, But just the, the Black Mirror itself and then the way that my contributors were able to delve into the episodes and bring out the philosophical content really really made it work. So I'm really excited for the book to hit shelves and, 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 uh, and Amazon and that kind of stuff and be in readers' hands. Um, but there you go.
1: Well, we're very excited to read it, um, especially me and Dan. Uh, could you uh, tell me which your favorite Black Mirror episode is and why?
0: Uh,
1: <sighs> yeah, it's a hard one. Sorry to uh, put you on the spot.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to have to be Bandersnatch. Oh, good um, choice just because uh, it deals with some of the philosophical topics that I, that are most in my wheelhouse and that I'm mm-hmm. most interested in. Um, also just the absolute originality of it um, to be able to do what they did, that they had to create software to make it work and how well the software works. Um, but then the, the very kind of meta, meta, meta idea of, you know, you have a uh, do, can we use the phrase, choose your own adventure? Um, <laughs> like, uh the you know it's an ep- it's 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 that kind of episode about a person making that kind of game inspired by that kind of book uh in the you know in the episode itself and you know it ends with somebody making the, making the actual thing that we're watching like one of the endings at least is you know, um, Pearl, uh, Ritman at the end making the game that we're wa- like making the Banner Snatch episode that we're yeah. watching as it's just and, and then the, the stuff that it deals with free will and multiverse and, and she's and, being
1: uh, controlled by the same force yes. as Stefan
0: yes right and it's it's just uh it's it's just brilliant in so many different ways, um, and I, I like the you know almost every ending. I like the way that they did the you know the different kinds of endings where you had he you know you realize that he's an actor on a set, yeah. Or he goes he goes back in time and dies with his mother, yep. so it's got time travel in it. I like that. Um, it's just all around just just fantastic. But I will say that um, as endings go, um, Shut Up and Dance might have my favorite ending. I think that the Ooh. twist um the twist is just magnificent and the way and i'm a big radiohead fan and the way they use that radiohead song is just absolutely brilliant um so maybe like for endings uh, that, that may be my favorite ending of any episode um for for message it might be it might be smithereens um the the way that it the kind of social message about digital addiction and attention-seeking and uh, the way that our attention is manipulated. Uh, it's just so good. Um, <laughs> and, I, I understand actually, every
1: episode has something, you know, that, you, that resonates.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: could you explain uh, the difference between a parallel universe and a multiverse, or is it
0: the <laughs> same thing? No. So uh, parallel universes are part of a multiverse. I so, see um a multiverse is just a collection of universes all right yep um, and in each one of those universes uh well, excuse me in like yeah so multiverse collection of universe and then each one of those universes is a is a universe parallel to the other ones or at least as it's it's commonly conceived um so in relativity for example uh you you've got the idea of Um, our universe being a four dimensional block that essentially our universe exists as a whole past, present, and future, all as one object. Um, we experience it, you know, as, as time, we, we experience time passing. Uh, but Einstein suggested that that was just an illusion, um, and that it exists all as a block. And essentially the multiverse, one, at least one kind of multiverse would be where you have multiple four dimensional blocks, like our universe stacked up in what's called the fifth, the fifth dimension or in the brain, um, B-R-A-N-E, stacked up in a brain uh, where they're all kind of existing parallel. Um, They don't happen simultaneously because simultaneity can only apply within a universe itself, but you can conceptualize them as stacked up parallel. Um, You could also – you could have a a multiverse of non-parallel universes, for example, if our universe repeats. Okay. If our universe burns itself out and goes back down to a vacuum and then you get another vacuum fluctuation, creates a big bang. Another universe comes out of that. There's a great Futurama episode.
1: Battlestar Galactica as well.
0: Yes. Right. I like, was like, all this has happened before and it'll happen yep. again. Right. Like, and if that would actually be a multiverse each time the universe restarts, that's a separate entity, but it's not like stacked up in the brain as it were. Um, that's, that's another way to conceive of a multiverse. Um so the the way that the book treats Black Mirror is as a multiverse. All the episodes do not happen in one universe; they happen in multiple universes. Um, but the but so but the multiverse is obviously this is a different multiverse than what we existed. If we exist in a multiverse or a universe, and so it's still a world that that Bricker has created, but it's a world that's not a single universe. It's a it's a multiverse, and it's a specific kind of multiverse. Where what happens in one universe can affect what happens or what has happened or can affect in some way other universes. Yes, because um,
1: they're linked. You know, obviously they're, names so they're linked, and things repeat. Right,
0: and... right. They're linked, but it's not like the events of one hapiso- episode happened in the same universe as the event of this other episode. Yeah. Uh, so, f- for example, you get like, it, it could be that, like, um, uh, in Archangel whenever she's demonstrating the archangels uh, so the nurse is demonstrating the archangel's ability to filter out violent content she shows the little girl a scene from uh men without fire um. and right and so it could be that in the archangel universe men without fire is a television show right Imagine like that. And, and, right and so but then of course, in the Archangel universe, that it's not a television show, it's real, but that's a separate universe, right? Um, some, there, you can find some people online that try to make sense of, like, that try to put all of the Black Mirror episodes into one, into one
1: universe. Yeah, it doesn't, I've um, seen those theories. They they don't hold water for me, but...
0: They they, they don't work, and like, I can actually prove this logically that they don't work. <laughs> um, because Ashley 2, which is the last episode to air as of this recording... Yep. Um, Ashley, too, has an appearance from the rapper, what's his name, Tucker? The one that was killed in, right? Um, But then Ashley, too, also references uh, a black museum. They they say that there's this news story about this guy that was found burned to death in in a a burned out museum. Yeah. Right? Uh, And so Ashley, too, happens after Black Mirror, but has to happen before Hated in the Nation because Tucker's still alive the yep. rapper is still alive right yeah yeah yep. and and yet in black museum there was one of the the the, the B drones one of the uh, um what I forget what the the the, the autonomous a autonomous drones ADIs yep. right one of the ADIs was in the black museum so black museum in the black museum universe happens after hate in the nation but ashley 2 happens before it But then Ashley 2 also happens after Black Museum. So it's a logical conundrum. There's no way to make it work. Like if it them all in the same universe, the only way to make it work is to have them – all the episodes exist separately in different universes where the the different universes can influence one another. And by the way, this is what Brooker has said. After Black Museum, he said that it's all in one universe. I want it to be all in one. But then after when they did Bandersnatch, he came back and said, I've changed my mind. I, I, we're just doing a multi- it's a black mirror multiverse what can happen in one can affect the others but they're not all in the same universe and I, this is a brilliant move in my in because he doesn't the have to most worry about freedom
1: as well doesn't it from absolutely a, from a narrative not standpoint it, it means they're not beholden to their own stories
0: <laughs> yeah yeah exactly they don't have to worry about continuity they don't yeah. have to worry about continuity at all and they can just throw in references from another episode and not worry about it, otherwise you have is- a
1: whole star trek discovery situation and oh, yeah, yes. you don't want that
0: <laughs> no
1: you don't, no, you don't. Um, sci-fi is a great lens to examine and discuss the issues of our time and this is one of black mirror's greatest strengths with this in mind do you think the themes in black mirror will become dated uh like you know the red menace episodes from 1950s and 60s sort of sci-fi pop culture or do you think these are timeless questions
0: what a great question clearly you've been listening all right so <laughs> um so the the conclusion of the book is actually about this it's this is a short piece um uh, writ- written by uh, Rabbi Jeff Middleton, if I'm remembering his last name correctly. Um, and the, here he points out, and this actually has to do with the approach of the book, and I think a, a way that a lot of people misunderstand Black Mirror. Most people think that Black Mirror is about the dangers of technology and so that like each episode is kind of this warning about technology and how it's taking control of us and how it's making us worse and and it's making humanity worse and it's dangerous, et cetera, et cetera. You can see this demonstrated beautifully on this College Humor video where like if Black Mirror had been in the Middle Ages – have have you guys seen this? Yes, yeah. right and you know the guy's like uh, oh look at this new fancy invention a plow right it makes planting easier and i, I dug a, a hole to hell or whatever and the guy in the audience is like well i was going to get a plow but now i'm not going to right uh so like and that's how it's kind of perceived it's just like every episode is like "Ooh, the, the technology is dangerous don't do it don't don't participate brooker has said that's not what the series is about and i i don't think that's what the series is really about um and this is not how the the, the book approaches the series uh brooker has said that it's it's not about the dangers of technology. It's not a technological problem we have. It's a human one.
1: Yes, and, uh, I saw this and in what the book? It's fantastic. This is and
0: what black? Yeah, thanks. So like, and what? Oh, go ahead. I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, no, no. Carry on, carry on, please. So so like so what 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 Black Mirror does is what the moral of most episodes is about. Is about a human foible. It's about a human flaw. It's something that we do wrong. It's something that's wrong about us. And the advanced technology, or sometimes not even advanced technology, like in episodes like, um, uh, well, Smithereen. like uh, Smithereen, right? Um, or um, uh, the very first episode, uh, National Nation. uh, No, no, National oh, Anthem. Oh, sorry. National, Nation. yeah, yeah, yeah. I screw I those up too. I, couple <laughs> episodes, I, I, I cross all the time. But like those don't involve advanced technology. But what they're doing, the technology that exists in the episode amplifies the human foible and makes it more obvious and makes it more pronounced so that we can see it and examine it and, and realize it and then hopefully maybe even change something about ourselves. Right. And so, um, with certain exceptions, like Smithereens, might be a warning about Facebook and Twitter. Like it might be a warning about the technology. Um, maybe Metalhead is a, is a warning about artificial intelligence. Um, but the best example of this, and I and I think most other episodes are like this, is Archangel. Archangel is not about the dangers of the Archangel technology. Yeah. The Archangel technology in Archangel amplifies. Marie, right? That's that's the mother's name, yes. right? Marie's over, like her propensity to overparent, to be a helicopter parent, to be a bulldozer parent, to, to watch everything and filter everything that her, that that she does. It amplifies her overparenting, enables her to overparent way more than she would be yeah. able to otherwise. Right? The technology but isn't that-
1: inherently bad, and you know, there's even a point where she knows that if she leaves it, if she doesn't look, you know, right. nothing nothing bad will come from it. Right. But right. of course, she can't if- help but look.
0: Yes, and if you limited it to just, like, whenever she's younger, if you just limit it to, like, location services, right, and, like, tracking her vitals, that that would be fine, right? Um, But when she turns the filter on, that's too much. But we already do, like, we already filter what our kids see, right? Parents already do this. The Archangel device just allows them to do it more. But there's not just as much danger, but there's an equally... The, the same type of danger is there for us without the Archangel device in overparenting itself. And a lot of the episodes are like this. They're not about the technology, they're about the 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 human foible that how the we technology would abuse them. magnifies, like how we would abuse them because yeah. we are because because we are flawed. Right. Um, and so like I, I just wrote a uh, blog article for psychology today on the Waldo moment. And it was kind of it was inspired by the course that I taught this semester. Because even though the Waldo moment was the episode that my students kind of panned as, as being the worst episode of all of them, I think it's the most important um, because – maybe this contradicts what I said a while ago about smithereens being the most important. But like <laughs> I, I, I think it's the most important because the message is not about – Waldo. It's, it's not about the dangers of the kind of animated technology and, uh, and that, they, that, could, like, that a politician could use um, in the way that they describe in the episode. And it's not even about all politicians being fake like Waldo. The, the, the message, the danger is the human foible that's amplified is the human tendency for their political involvement to only be as deep as, I don't like the establishment. I don't like the way things are. And that's as deep as it goes. There's no extra. And so what we should be doing is such and such and such. Things should change in these kinds of ways. It's just because that's all Waldo is. And this is stated explicitly in the episode. All Waldo is is anti-establishment.
1: Yeah, he has no uh, real policies or anything. Yeah. He just uh, he's anti-establishment and he's a character.
0: Right. And the, the the secret agent from America that comes over says, this anyone can use this. You can tie any political any political idea to Waldo because he doesn't stand for anything except for being anti-establishment and everybody's anti-establishment. Everybody (laughs) doesn't like the way things are. Right. But that means that fascists could come in and start using Waldo as a logo. And then they could rise to power. Right. They just say, Hey, we're against the establishment. Aren't you too? Yes. And since you don't bother to ask what they're going to do after they take control, they can do whatever the hell they want. Right. Mm -hmm. Notice that to talk American politics, right. Notice that make America great again right, Uh, and uh, America First, that kind of, like, these are all slogans that are just, like, against the establishment as it currently stands with no specifics about what's going to happen afterwards. (laughs) Yes. It appeals to that
1: emotional side rather than any kind of actual...
0: Yes. Right. And so what Waldo's about is this human foible of our political disengagement. It is is a warning about either political disengagement or your engagement only going as deep as fuck the establishment. Um, And... That's dangerous. Uh, so anyway, if you if you're more interested in that, I got a whole four series blog post up on Psychology Today about that. Um, check it out. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> you refer to Black
1: Mirror as a uh, science fiction, but just barely. So what do you think sets Black Mirror apart from uh, high sci-fi like Star Trek or Westworld or Alter Carbon?
0: Yeah. So it's one of the reasons is because um, it's not mired in. Complete, overarching. So, like, Star Trek is set way, way in the future, right? Uh, Battlestar Galactica is in the past, but it's the technology is like way, way advanced. You got starships and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, same thing with Star Wars, although some people call Star Wars fantasy, right? But you got spaceships and laser guns and all blah blah blah, right? <laughs> yeah. Like with with Black Mirror, it's the technology is just advanced, kind of barely beyond what we have in most cases, right? Like, it's technology that you could kind of see coming and is sort of plausible, and in some cases was actually ahead of its time and it's already come to, to pass. Like, Nosedive is a great example where yes. there's already social banking systems in China like the ones that were described in Nosedive, right? And then I, I say barely because, like like kind of like I mentioned before, episodes like The National Anthem and like Smithereen, um, and I'm trying to come up with another example. Uh, I feel like there's one more. Um, don't it, don't involve any advanced technology, right? They're mm-hmm. they're just set in modern day, right? Um, I guess I should say oh, Bandersnatch is another one that doesn't involve any advanced technology because it's set in the past. Um, and so, like if taken taken by itself, the national anthem is not sci-fi, right? At all, yeah. Because. Right, I mean, it's it's got a moral message and all that kind of stuff that sci-fi does, but there's no advanced technology, isolated by itself. That's not a science fiction episode. Same thing with same thing with Smithereens. It's not because it's. I mean, Smithereens is just is just Facebook. It's really it's Twitter, and I think Persona, the 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 thing called Persona in that episode, is Facebook, and yeah. and 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 Smithereens is Twitter, right? But like it's just what it's just existing technology with a name that we have maybe potentially the phone technology in smithereens is a little advanced i'm not sure but but other than that right like um but utterly um, believable that's the thing like you you, um, accept it pretty quickly yeah absolutely right so and that that's what i mean by it's barely science fiction um is that it's just kind of barely advanced and it's not the technology is it's 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 the in a lot of ways it's the focus not not the focus as in the dangers of or whatever but like um in Star Trek, technology is just treated differently. It's just taken for the technology is not the focus in, in a certain kind of way. Um, it's uh, it's a it's a method for telling the story. Whereas in in Black Mirror, the technology is kind of the focus, not entirely. Like I said, it's more about human foibles, but it's focused in a different kind of way. But anyway,
1: it also feels like uh, sh- typical um, sci-fi shows like Star Trek have a kind of blanket uh, high technology, um, whereas yeah. Black Mirror is often one aspect of that technology taken to an extreme point the rest of society is usually very similar to or the same as what we currently have it's just one aspect of technology that's advanced and everything else is kind of at the same level
0: yeah, like, that's a really good. For Star Trek, that's really easy to see, right? Like, mm. in Star Trek, they live in a completely different world than we do, right? A unified Earth and a federation of planets and starships and da 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 right? Black Mirror, they're almost in our world. There's, like, one thing that's different. Well, if, you could if, even
1: transplant some Star Trek things into Black Mirror, as, as long as they only took that one technology and talked about right. what that means. They could take replicators and go, well, economies have now collapsed because... You know, right. replicators have rendered economy obsolete, or transporters. You know the dangers right. of that. You know they they could just focus on the one thing and how we would, well, as we said, abuse that, or how uh, human beings would take that.
0: Yeah. The only thing that would make those differences, I think those particular two technologies that you mentioned are a little bit too advanced for Black Mirror. (laughs) Yes. Right. Like they're they're, like you wouldn't look at that and go, oh, that could happen tomorrow. Like Most Black Mirror episodes, you look at it and say, oh, that that maybe could happen tomorrow. Uh, Maybe the exception to that is the cookie tech. Um, The cookie tech is probably a little bit more advanced than we give it credit for. Like, I mean, Ray Kurzweil would say that it's it's you know, it's going to happen by 2050 or whatever. But I I don't I think that's an overestimate. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. Um, uh, yeah, go ahead.
1: So the idea that we in fact have no free will and we may not be responsible for our decisions could have terrifying implications. Could this also be liberating? If, like Stefan, we just well, in one of his endings, he just accepts it.
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. So there's a section of this on the Bandersn- in the Bandersnatch chapter, and so I should mention um, that. The chapter that we wrote for Bandersnatch, um, so and this actually happened in the middle of editing the book. We had we had 19 chapters written for the existing episodes, and then Bandersnatch came out. <laughs> uh, and we're like, okay, so what are we going to do? How, how do we want to approach this? I had a couple of ideas. And then one of the co-authors, one of the contributors uh, could, uh, for one of the other chapters, Chris Lay, came to me and said, I've got a great idea. Let's do a Choose Your Own Philosophical Adventure chapter for Bandersnatch, where you have a section and then you have different questions and the reader gets to decide which question they want to explore more and i was like that's a great idea this is the best thing ever uh, i love this plan i'm excited to be a part of it let's do it so um we i we i mapped it all out what where we would talk about and, and how it would go and the different ways the selections they would circle back on itself and there's five different endings and yada 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 but we have this beautiful i'm very proud of um choose your own philosophical adventure chapter um in, in the Black Mirror book for Bandersnatch. And one of the sections, like one of the main themes that goes through it, or at least one of the paths that goes through this chapter, is this idea of free will and are we really free? And ultimately, if we're not free, does that liberate us? Does that mean that we're not responsible for our actions anymore and we can do whatever the hell we want? Um, there are multiple reasons for thinking that we're not free. Um, everything from if we really do live in a four-dimensional universe where the future is already exists, well, then the future already exists. There's nothing you can do, but what you will do, right? Like there's no alternate possibilities, um, to, uh, the fact that it looks like the way that you behave is dictated by your neural structure and your neural structure is outside of your control is dictated by your, you know, your genetics and environment. Um, and so you really can't do otherwise than what you do. Um, and so there's multiple reasons for thinking that you have free will. Is this liberating though? Um, I don't, I don't think so. Um, Certainly not in the way that uh, Stefan seems to think that it is liberating. (laughs) Um, That It means that you're just absolved of all responsibility for what you're going to do uh, and that you can just kind of do whatever you want because maybe fate wants you to murder someone, so just go ahead and murder. Um, There's a couple of different ways – a couple of different reasons for that. One is that some philosophers don't think that free will requires alternate possibilities, and certainly they don't think that moral responsibility – requires alternate possibilities so even if you're not able to do otherwise you can still be morally responsible for what you did because you're the one that did it um guy named marcosian has a really good uh theory of free will called agent uh it's, it's a compatibilist theory of agent causation but essentially the idea as long as you the agent are the one who did the action then you freely did it and you're morally responsible for it regardless of whether you couldn't have done otherwise um so you're still morally responsible even if you couldn't have done otherwise um Others, like uh, Frankfurt, would say as long as it, you're acting in accordance with your second order wants and desires, you're free and morally responsible. Fisher would say as long as you did what you did as a result of a rational deliberation, then you did so freely and are morally responsible. Um, so even if we're not free in the traditional libertarian alternate possibility ways that we usually think of when we think of free will, it's still entirely possible that we're morally responsible for what we do. Um, but secondly, uh this is one of the pieces of Bandersnatch that disturbed me. The the lady that's that's doing the documentary uh, about um, oh yes uh, uh, Davies, the guy who wrote the original, right? She's like, so he came to believe he didn't have free will. If you don't have free will, you just do whatever you want. Maybe fate, you know, maybe fate wants you to be a murderer. So why not murder? And the answer to that question is because maybe fate doesn't want you to murder, right? Like, if if, if <laughs> it's if not we, the really, only viable <laughs> option. Yes, right. Like, if, if if we are fated in that way, um, then we can't. We can't not do whatever we're fated to do, but since what we don't know what we're fated to do, we can't ever say, so I might as well just it. do such and such. Yeah, exactly. Like You mm. might as well just do such and such because maybe that's what I'm fated to do. Well, no, that's that- – you, you may be fated to do something else. You you have you still, and notice that, regardless of whether you have free will, you'll still be held responsible for what you do, right? So even if you believe that you don't have free will, um, or, you know, we can't shake that philosophical intuition, or can't shake that philosophical conclusion that we don't have free will, you still should be trying to reason out what the best thing to do is, and then do it. Like, it's not an <laughs> excuse to just go murder people or whatever, right? Like, uh, And so um, now Stefan obviously doesn't understand that. And so he goes and murders a dad, at least in one of the endings yeah. um, or a couple of the endings, I guess. Um, but I don't think it's liberating in that way.
1: <laughs> that leads on uh, quite well to the next question, which is the white bear symbol pertaining to binary choice ignores one option which uh, you mention in the book uh, and it's often given to us in computer games um, but we didn't have it in Bandersnatch, and that is inaction is inaction an important option and what is lost by its removal i mean do we just move like a car without brakes until eventually we <laughs> crash
0: Right, yeah, so, like, I mean, there sort of is inaction, because if you do, you can do nothing whenever the, the choices pop up. Um, but then the computer, like, it, the system just chooses for you. Yeah, um, yeah, right? but,
1: so- but in a in a game, sometimes uh, the state will, nothing will be forced. So while you may not progress, um, you won't necessarily do, I don't know, let's say it's a game that has something horrible happen next. That person may never die if you never progress, therefore your inaction is a choice, and in life, you know, given a choice, you can choose to not act, which a lot of people do for certain things.
0: right right yeah, and I mean it's, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure um what else to say about it, other than it's like it can force you to like there's an interesting question about whether or not choices that you make in Bandersnatch are immoral or not like literally you're doing something immoral by 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 choosing chop up dad rather than <laughs> bury than bury dad right like um in the same way that you worry that we talk we talk about this in my, my class in the same way that you worry about somebody if somebody's playing grand theft auto and they decide to hire have sex with it then murder a hooker in the game right like yeah. you might you might wonder like oh yeah it's just a game but haven't you kind of done something wrong uh, by <laughs> by doing this in the game, right? Or more appropriately, maybe more accurately, maybe you haven't done something wrong, but maybe you revealed something about your character that's a little disturbing, right? Um, by by choosing to do this in the game. And so you might worry about the same thing with Bandersnatch, right? That maybe what by not giving us choices, it's – Forcing us to do something disturbing, maybe forcing us to do, it, to do something immoral, um, or at least revealing something about ourselves. Um, but and I don't know, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question quite right. <laughs> um, the there is the choice of an option. There there is the choice of an action, though, because you can just shut it off. Yeah, that's right? a good point. Like, right, like you, if when it comes to bury Dad or chop up Dad, you can just go neither, thank you, and just <laughs> I'm out and just, done <laughs> and just turn it off. Right. Yeah. Um, and so uh there is but there is a kind of moral quandary by forcing if if you're if you're going to play the game it forces these kind of decisions on you um and that may be worrying but i'm not sure i'm not sure i answered your question or not james
1: uh does this change if you are viewing uh or playing uh with other people
0: yeah i i mean i think it has to right um that because you're you're part of a group at that point and then the group can be responsible for uh um, you, you chose know, the, the to the chop choices. him up, you monster. Why would you do that? Why do we I mean, want I, to watch that? <laughs> I mean I guess if you're a dissenter of the group, maybe you're not as responsible as the group if the group overrules you. What's Dan right? told um, you
1: about me? <laughs> How did you know?
0: <laughs> but um that there and that's that's another interesting question in and of itself. Can groups be held morally responsible um for their actions? And then you can also flip this to what degree are persons responsible for belonging to groups and if the group does something bad um, then are you partly responsible for what the group did even though you didn't do it directly Um, I've got got a paper on this that relates directly to religion and moral culpability when it comes to choosing to be religious or choosing to be a part of a religious group right Um, if you belong to a particular religious group and then the group or even just someone in that group does something immoral In the name of a belief that that group finds to be identifying right like everyone in that group belongs to that group because they believe X and then someone in that group because they believe X goes off and murders someone are you partly responsible for that behavior not as much responsible as they are but are you at least more partly morally culpable for that because like the Manson family or yeah right like the Manson family or I'm thinking uh, like a, a really easy example uh, would be someone who belongs to, uh, easy example, Westboro Baptist Church, Yep. right? Like, and somebody belongs to that church, but they don't go to the protests, right? And they don't hold up the signs, and the placards at the funerals and, and that, on that kind of stuff, right? But they still belong. And they still
1: the, hold those values.
0: And they still hold those values, right? And that they like, maybe they tithe or whatever, they give money to the group. But even if they don't, like if they just go to church there on Sundays, right? The group wouldn't exist without members, and so, by being a member, you're contributing to the existence of the group. And so, and the group does bad things, and so you're partly culpable for that, right? And it's an interesting question about how far this goes, right? Like, um, if people do bad things in the name of believing in God, and you believe in God, are you partly morally responsible for that? Um, and so, there, there is this kind of, there's this kind of reverse question too. And so, if you're participating in bandersnatch in a group, all of those all those questions come back up. Now it's not as serious as actually murdering someone because it is just a television show. Dad's not really being chopped up. Um, but one of the sections in the bandersnatch, um,
1: no, luckily Craig Parkinson is alive and well. We met him on a previous podcast. He's a lovely man.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I remember listening to that podcast. Um, that, uh, that the, it, To the degree that maybe we can make immoral choices in games, and again, there's a section on, in stage on this, uh, there would be some moral culpability there. Hopefully that answered your question.
1: No, it does. It's fantastic. Thank you. Okay. Could you explain um, to our listeners, especially those who aren't as well versed in philosophy, like myself, uh, the links between Black Mirror specifically and philosophy?
0: Yeah, so I think that uh, as I kind of mentioned before, I think that the individual episodes are either making some kind of philosophical point or raising a philosophical question, uh, and so and that's where the link ca- can happen. And what we try to do in the book is link those things up. We try to identify what the you know the philosophical point or question of each episode is, and by doing that, it, we can actually you can actually explore and educate yourself about diff- different philosophical theories or 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 positions or even philosophers. So. Easy example: White bear.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: White White bear raises specific questions about criminal punishment and what the purpose of criminal punishment should be. So, um, in debates on this, there are essentially two views on the subject: that criminal punishment should be retributive, or it should, or it should be rehabilitative. Um, the retributive,
1: you rehabilitated if your memory is wiped, et etc.
0: Well, yeah, exactly, right? So so what's going on in White Bear is completely retributive. It is all about vengeance. Yeah. It is the idea that uh, Veronica has, Victoria, sorry, Victoria Scalane has done something morally wrong and she deserves to be punished for it. And so we're going to give her what she deserves. And since they're wiping her memory every time, as you pointed out, it is very clear that there is no rehabilitation that's going on. She's not going to learn her lesson and be a different person and be a better person. Right. She can't because she forgets whatever lessons she's learns. She learns every time. Right. And so that chapter like brings that out and talks about these two theories of punishment and which one you should prefer and which one would be better. Um, not to mention the fact that this one also also raises the question of whether they're actually punishing the person who did the crime, because since her memory of the crime has been erased, there is a question about whether or not she actually is the same person. And I don't mean the same kind of person, whether she is numerically the same object. That's brilliant. I was
1: literally about to say that. I was like, is she even the same person? If she hasn't got the memories of said event, is she even um, culpable to it?
0: Right, so it might not even be retributive because they're not even punishing the person who did the crime. By this point, it's punishment
1: for punishment's sake, surely?
0: Yes, right? Like it's just punishing someone because the public needs someone to be punished for the crime. Right, And that's all it is. And so they're just punishing someone who actually is innocent because they're a different person. Yeah. Right. Um, or uh, another episode that, that I think does this particularly well, the chapter on Hated in the Nation. Uh, Elaine Meyer wrote this chapter um, and kind of at my behalf because this this is what I noticed. Um, the Death to hashtag in Hated in the Nation – uh, is something that, of course, it happens on Twitter, and it's something that can end people's lives. When people become hated uh, in the nation, right, when they become hated, yep. uh, everyone puts that, that two hashtag and they end up getting killed by the, the ADIs, right? Okay, so um, the episode seems to be like the reason that the, uh, the, protagon- the, the, the antagonist in that episode did what he did was because this girl that he worked with almost committed suicide because she was publicly shamed for something that she did. On Twitter, right, and he puts this manifesto out that says essentially, like, we we need to help we need to help, help hold people responsible for their online behavior because they don't understand that it has real world consequences, right? Yeah. And so the, the moral of the episode seems to kind of be that online shaming is always bad, right? Never participate in it. You shouldn't participate in it. It's got it's got legitimate power. Don't online shame people. It's always wrong, right? And the 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 the, the example, of course, the episode gives is hashtag. Death 2. Yeah. The episode airs almost exactly a year before Alyssa Milano popularizes hashtag Me Too. Not Death 2, but uh, Me Too. And Me Too has kind of the same power that the Death 2 hashtag does. It can't kill people, but it can in careers. It can completely change lives right? It can, it can take people out. But here's the difference though, right? Is that the Me Too hashtag seems to be doing something good. It's holding people accountable for behavior that they would get away with if it not were not for the Me Too hashtag, right? It brings Harvey Weinstein to justice. It yep. exposes Neil Cosby, right? Like, so it's doing some good. And so this and really- And without co- killing
1: these people, it just, you know, obviously it right. just highlights the awful
0: things they have done. Right, right. But it is trial by Twitter- Yeah. Right. But it is getting some just results in certain cases. Right. Um, And so this really complicates the moral of the episode, which is never participate in online shaming. It's always bad because sometimes it can be good. But in the same breath. Right. You can't forget that even with me, too, as noble as the uh, as the aspirations and the goals are, it could still potentially be abused. And so you have to guard against. Right. Like the the different ways that it could be abused and be aware of the way they could be abused as you're using it. And and so what what Alina's done in this chapter is is very risky. Right. It's (laughs) it's it's because she's like she's on the, the edge of a knife here going like we have to be honest about the dangers of online shaming. But we also have to be honest about the potential benefits that it has. And as people who are like in the real world who are trying to figure out when you should participate and when you shouldn't you need to be looking at both sides of the coin to figure out where where that you draw that line and when you should participate and when you shouldn't right and ultimately it's really it's not even that controversially of, of a conclusion because the conclusion is just is we need to be careful right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um but 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 this is a, a an extremely philosophical issue right um that 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 you need philosophy to, to pull out and to recognize and to look at the different aspects of and the arguments on both sides. And I think Elaine's done a really good job on that. Um, and another really good episode of where you have uh, philosophy uh, and the bridge between philosophy and Black Mirror is uh, Nosedive. So Jean-Paul Sartre has this, uh, this idea of the look, um and I'm not an existentialist and I don't I don't study Sartre so I'm not an expert on this but but generally the look Sartre argued famously or he did so in a play called No Exit uh where there's a line in it that says hell is other people. <laughs> and, and in in No Exit what happens is three people uh are in a waiting room in hell. They've died and they've gone to hell but they're in a waiting room awaiting their torturer to show up. And the the play explicates their conversation that they have um While they're sitting there waiting for their torture. And they tell each other their stories, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what they eventually realize, and so like one of the things that happens is the guy in the story reveals that he didn't fight in such and such a war because he was a principled, because he was a principled pacifist. And one of the ladies in the, one of the other ladies in the room says, that's, that's, that's BS. You weren't a pacifist. You were just a coward. No, I was a pacifist. Now you were a coward. And he essentially devotes all of eternity to trying to convince her otherwise, to convince her that he was a principled pacifist rather than a coward. And what they eventually realize is that there is no torturer. There is no torturer coming. This is their hell to be locked in a room with each other, all of them looking at each other, judging each other, right? making, drawing conclusions about the kind of person that they are and what they're doing and the hell that is you trying to control how other people see you and being looked at at by other people and them judging you and them looking at you and uh, making conclusions about who you are and you trying to rectify that and you trying to project yourself in a certain kind of way so you're perceived in the way that you kind of want to. And this is their hell. This is what it means for hell to be other people, right? Right. Yeah. And of course, the, uh, the moral of the story is that guess what? This is the world we live in, right? Like we, we live in a hell because we are constantly looking at each other in the way that Sartre described and we're constantly preoccupied by how people judge us and how people view us and we're trying to control how they view, they view us or see us or, or conceive of us. And, and, and that's the hell that we're in. And what social media does is amplify that. Like social media exists almost exclusively except for like – it exists to do two things, political misinformation and then to facilitate our looking at each other and the way that we want to be looked at. Right. And so you have this pressure to per- put yourself forth on social media in a way that you want to be perceived. And then, of course, you are perceiving other people. And so you're constantly worried about other people, the way other people perceive you. And you're constantly pers- worried about how you perceive them. And they're worried about you. And it's it, like it, like the social media magnifies Sartre's concerns about the look. If only Sartre right. knew. Right. Uh, he would be horrified. right? <laughs> and, what, and what Nosedive does is illustrate Sartre's look beautifully that and, and this idea of 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 the look being of, of hell being other people and the the, the look being uh, oppressive um it illustrates this beautifully and that's why interestingly like nosedive has got one of the only happy endings is because lacy and the the guy across from her in the other cell have both been liberated from the rating technology And so they're no longer looking at each other or being looked at, right? They no longer care what anyone else thinks. And so this is why they are truly happy at the end, swearing at each other and throwing insults back and forth or whatever, because they don't have to worry about it. They have been liberated from the look, right? Um, And this is, even though they're in jail, this is why it's the the happy ending. Anyway.
1: (laughs) True uh, contradictory kind of crazy ending that Black Mirror likes to chuck in there occasionally. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, why do you think the Black Mirror has resonated so well with a global audience? What is it about these dark reflections of our society that
0: are so appealing to us? That's a really good question. The, I think the answer is simple. Because it's true. And obviously it's fiction, right? Uh, and so like, I actually start the introduction of the book with a quote from Fee, uh, from the entire history of you where she says, uh, going off memory here, but like, not everything that isn't true is a lie. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Right, and she's referring to her stories about like, you know, what she said about her relationship. But in Black Mirror fashion, I, I open the book with that quote because I'm reinterpreting it in the same way that Black Mirror reinterprets songs for their endings. This is another very common Black Mirror trope where you get a song that means something completely different than it originally meant, like in Smithereens, I can't take my eyes off of you. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously it wasn't about Twitter, but anyway. Um, and so I am uh, reinterpreting that line to suggest that what's going on with Black Mirror is that, and, there, and there, I think the reason it resonates with people is that it's true. Again, it's fiction, so it's not literally true, but the messages that it gets across the things that it the, the the philosophical questions it raises and the answers it proposes the 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 points that it makes the social commentary that it makes are spot on and and it can do that in a way i think and this is this is one of the reasons i wanted to edit this book so bad is cuz from the first time i saw a black mirror episode i was like oh there's definitely a point there but i'm not exactly sure what it is but what but whatever it is it's right like I, but with, before figuring out what the message of the show was, I could still say, "But whatever it is, it's right." Like this, this episode is on something. It is dead right. It is, it is accurately describing. It's, it's adequately criti- adequately criticizing something. But I'm not even sure what it is. But it's definitely right, right. And then I wanted to get in and dig and figure out what that was. And that's kind of what the book does: is it goes through each episode and it tries to figure out what that is, right? But I think that that the, that mystery of knowing not exactly what's what's what its point is, but it's got it's onto to something, is intriguing, and so that's why it resonates with people. But then, especially when people figure out what it's doing and the point it's making, um, yeah. people go, "Yeah, you know, that is that is just it's dead on. It resonates. It's true." Um, and I think it, I you know, it may not change the entire human race, but I think it can change people. Right? Like I know that um, when people watched nose, some, some, some people watching nosedive, it caused them to get off social media. Wow. They, they, they stopped with snap. Now this was in the, the inside black mirror book, but you had quotes from people saying that like, I stopped, I stopped doing Snapchat after that because I realized I had become obsessed with it. And I was obsessed with how people were ranking me and looking at me, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that, um, people have realized that, um, like, you know, some people are inspired to create the the memory technology in the entire history of you. And other people are are realizing that would not be a good thing to do. Uh, and that to the extent that Facebook allows us to do that kind of things, people don't do it anymore. I think people definitely are more cognizant. I know I am as a result of watching Smithereen, that I'm more cognizant of the way that Facebook, for example, tries to draw my attention, tries to keep my attention, profits off my attention. Um Essentially makes – this is one of the points the chapter makes on smithereens is that Facebook has turned me into a unplayed employee because every time I'm on Facebook generating information about my wants and preferences and needs and desires and, and interests, et cetera, I am creating a target for them to sell advertising to. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, the the book essentially argues that that's we are all unpaid employees of Facebook. Um, every time we get on, we're, <laughs> we're producing we're producing monetary value for them, right? And that I am much more cognizant of that after watching Smithereen and reading the chapter. Um, and so I think that it can change people's lives. Uh, it won't change the whole human race, but it can make individual differences. And I think people resonate with that as well.
1: Brilliant. Um, do you think uh, Charlie Brooker is doing this on purpose? Do you think it's all written this way so cleverly layered or do you think it's just how we read into it do you think it's the human condition
0: yeah so there's a quote from brooker and i can't remember where it appears in the book um but maybe it's in the introduction he essentially says like "Ah, i don't want to be preachy i don't i don't i don't i don't don't, i'm I'm not i'm not trying to preach my you know moral truths anybody or whatever um and so he would deny that he has a moral message uh for the episodes and maybe consciously he doesn't um but I think that at least unconsciously, if not somewhere deep down, that
1: some he's, of his he's moral a, values are bleeding yeah, into
0: there or, or, or you know, conclusions that he's drawn or observations that he's made and conclusions mm-hmm. like that that he's that he, he puts those in the episode. I mean, uh, you can't watch smithereen and not think that he's got some kind of concerns about the way that Facebook and Twitter draw our attention. Um And even if it's just as simple as, you know, it can cause accidents because people are distracted by, you know, distracted by alerts and that kind of stuff, um, to, I, you know, he's got to have some, something for with Ashley too. He's got to have some kind of, uh, um, you know, idea about authentic, authenticity and artistic expression and that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, nosedive. He's, he's concerned about the effect of social media and the look and that kind of stuff. Um, Oh, and, and and I mean maybe it for national anthem. He has to be concerned about our preoccupation with spectacle. Mm. Um, I, I mentioned this in the this is mentioned in the book um, that you know when, when when they did the press junket and showed this to the the, the London you know press corps or whatever um, for the press corps is not the right word but the, like the, <laughs> the media uh, the press for the screening. First, the press screening, right? For the first time. And, you know, Brooker's known for some comedy and that kind of stuff, right? When the episode starts and, you know, the the premise of the prime minister is going to have to screw a pig on national television (laughs) is revealed, right? People laugh, right? They thought it was funny. It's like, oh, here, Brooker goes again with these silly, you know, these silly comedic antics or whatever. And that when that moment comes in the episode,
1: it's not funny. It's not played for
0: laughs. Well, here's what happened in the screening is that before like right before it happens the people the press watching it were reacting like the people in the bar they were they were jovial they were joking they had smiles on their faces they're like oh my god i can't believe what we're about to watch this is crazy and then as it happens on the episode and you see what happens they did exactly what the people in the bar did they all pulled themselves back they started to look away they started to like basically like oh my god what are, what are we watching and why are we watching this right like they they reacted in the same kind of way and there's this sense of shame where you really are part of the audience in the episode in this right like you you're are complicit the in the
1: in the crime
0: and you're complicit in the crime right like it is in real time it is criticizing the kind of reaction that you are giving to the episode right you were reveling in the spectacle you were looking forward to watching it you you were you would be one of the people in the bar saying you know don't turn it off right and it's criticizing that in the moment that you're doing it and it's just and it's brilliant and you can't i can't imagine that brooker does not have this in mind when he writes the episode that he, he has that criticism of spectacle in his head uh as he's writing it um has to be so he would say no but i think that there's something going there on That definitely there. is yeah yeah and you could also just divorce it, like maybe it doesn't matter whether Brooker is or not, um, and that's kind of how we—I I usually treat science fiction. There's certainly in my Great Courses course, sci-fi, science fiction as philosophy, I treat it that way. I'm not concerned about authorial intent. Authorial intent. I am concerned about what the media, as it stands, says and argues and is and is trying to get across, right? And kind of regardless of what the intentions of the author is. I look at it that way. And so maybe the answer to your question is, I I don't necessarily care, like I sort of do. (laughs) But like, ultimately, philosophically, I don't care whether Brooker's trying to get something across or not. His episodes definitely get something across. And I want to examine, I want to identify and examine what that is. And that's, again, that's what the book does.
1: Brilliant. Um, What technology from Black Mirror uh, unnerves you the most? And which one would you want in your life?
0: Okay. The one I want in my life is easy. The pizza delivery system from Crocodile. <laughs> what a good choice.
1: I mean, I've always wanted the, uh, the grain from the entire history of you, but my God, that is such a better choice.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's, it doesn't seem to be too dangerous. It only runs over people occasionally, well, right? Yeah. right? Like it's, 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 you know, it's just a, it's a pizza shop on wheels that just delivers hot pizza right to your door. I mean, what could oh, be better? I could, um, I could use that right now. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I would, And I would argue against your your, your, your grain. I, I think the grain is actually one of the more dangerous ones. Um, oh, definitely.
1: 100%. It, and, it, and I've admitted on previous podcasts that I would absolutely uh, use it like uh, Liam does. I would totally scrutinize everything I do. I'd probably be more critical of myself than others, especially uh, because of the nature of what we're doing, it being a podcast and from some of the other things we do here, but um, you know being able to see myself or my writing or my or hear my voice uh, can be very critical i'm sure everyone uh, is when they hear, when when you hear your own voice or when you see your face on a video or on a picture you're like oh i don't like
0: that yes and notice how this illustrates beautifully the idea that like entire history of you it's not about the grain no it's no. about it's about that human foible. It's about that propensity to overanalyze, to be overcritical, to nitpick, to get into other people's business, to try to find out everything about, especially with Liam, right? To try to find everything out about Fee and dig up her past and figure out, you know, figure out everything about her or whatever. And that the grain amplifies our ability to do that, and it destroys his world.
1: And, it would be amazing, though, to have that that un, uh, uncolored view uh, of. An event that's happened because obviously our memory is very subjective, but also your, so is your perspective. So to just have a, a clean look at something happened.
0: Yeah. I mean, it would like, and it would like. This is so this is what the, the chapter in the in the the chapter in the book on this episode is about. This I think the subtitle is literally like, "Should we want the grain?" <laughs> and one of the one of the points it does make is that it would come with huge benefits, right? Because you're right, human memory is very very fallible. That's mentioned in the episode, right? And so, grain technology would um, would rectify that, right? Uh, it would it would uh, alleviate uh, that worry about about the fallibility of memory. But it may not be worth the price. So so here's something that the the chapter does point out quite, quite brilliantly. Notice what it would, what the grain technology would do to trust and the ability of a couple to be in a trusting relationship. You would never be able to trust anyone to have ever done what they said or not done what they said or, or whatever, to be faithful or whatever it is, because you could always just say, oh, yeah, we'll just prove it then. Right. And. Everything would just be like you would almost eliminate conversation, right? Like you would just replay what happened instead of telling people about it, right? You would lose control over the narrative of your story, but it would also, it would be impossible to just implicitly trust would be unnecessary at that point because you could always just examine the grain footage,
1: right? Oh yeah, you'd always have the absolute of, of a situation.
0: But on the flip side, it seems that human relationships can, are only possible if Trust is required. That part of being in a relationship with, yeah. with someone is trusting them. And that the best relationships are ones where trust flows both ways. And trust couldn't flow anyway in a world where everyone had a grain.
1: I mean, another one uh, that I find particularly uh, terrifying is the mass system. I think uh, human beings already have the ability to dehumanize each other pretty well without any kind of uh, you know computer aid. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, so I was looking at the, t- the TOC for the book, and I was kind of trying to figure out which one. And, and that's actually the one I was about to hone in on. So I, I think that if it's not the grain, then it's, it's the mass system from uh, Men Without Fire. Because, and this is what this chapter is about, um, because it, again, amplifies a human foible. And that is our propensity to dehumanize other people um, and to dehumanize minorities and to make excuses for it and to even exterminate them. Right. Um, and the mass device just enables us to kind of do that on steroids, essentially. Right. Uh, but we already do that to a large degree. Um, the episode uh, calling them roaches was inspired by a British politician. I forget which one calling immigrants cockroaches. Like that's why Brooker chose that particular word, and that's happened before, right? Like um, the um, uh, in uh, you know, well, in American politics, you've got Trump calling people those kinds of names, uh, roaches and insects or vermin, calling it you know, calling uh, immigration. Uh, famously,
1: the Nazis used those kind of terminology to refer yes. to the Jews and anyone right. they deemed undesirable.
0: Right. And in World War like so so the, the Nazis did that in World War II to the Jews, right? Uh, but then Americans also did it to the Japanese. Yeah. Right. Um, right. And the Japanese did it to us, right? And, and that and that dehumanizing propaganda exists in war, but it also exists outside of war, right? Um, like when Trump calls immigrant like calls immigration infestation and that kind of stuff. Clearly the infestation implies insects, right? Like roaches. Um, and so it's 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 dangerous. Um and that's one of the most dangerous things that already exists, so maybe maybe the point to be put it, that that's one of our mo- most dangerous human foibles, and so if the mass device were actually real, it could amplify that foible tenfold and that could that could be the most disturbing like um piece of technology in in black mirror um because of the way that it would amplify that human foible
1: definitely Ooh, terrifying. Um, right. Another interesting question for you: Is Colin Ritman a god, uh, an enlightened prophet, or a whacked-out space cadet? Is there any lessons we can learn from our Lord and Savior Colin Ritman?
0: <laughs> so, Colin Ritman uh, is he a god? He, if he's a god, he's like a he's like a Gandalf character. Um, <laughs> and Gandalf is kind of on the pantheon. He's like a servant to one of the gods in Lord of the Rings. There's Elevata and there's the there's the the kind of sub gods, and they all have servants and you know uh like melkor morgoth is one of those servants and then below him is um sauron right and then you've got i forget which god that gandalf's a prophet of or whatever but like an angel of but and that's what that's what colin would be he'd be like this not a god in the sense of he rules over the universe and um controls it but he's like inside the universe and he understands it um and he can manipulate it in a certain sort
1: of multiverse guide (laughs)
0: Yes, right. Like, yeah, a multiverse guide, right? Uh, That's a a really good term. Um, (laughs) And so he's kind of like an angel again. Maybe prophet's the right kind of word because he understands it and understands how it works, right? Um, And uh, he understands his nature as a digital being and what it means and implies. Um, And so now what can we learn from him? Um, I assume you're referring to the little bit in one of my emails where I suggested that, I just recently read some papers which suggest that maybe we live in a world kind of like that yes. <laughs> yeah. so, so let me um, – what I'm going off of here is a series of papers by a guy named Marcus Arvan. Um, and he, he argues that – okay, so let me back up a smidge. God, this is going to take too long. I'm going to make this really, really quick. <laughs> sure. All right. So Nick Bostrom, an Oxford philosopher, has persuasively argued that the probability that we actually live in a computer simulation is about 20%. And I've published on this. You can look at my my work on academia.edu. Just Google academia.edu, David Kel Johnson. You can look up my academic work and you can find my stuff on the simulation hypothesis. I've done a couple of articles on this, even specifically arguing for why it's about 20%. It's a subjective probability, but a subjective probability about 20% that we live in a computer simulation. Wow. All right, so Arvon is not arguing for that specific number, 20%. But what he's arguing is that the idea, the hypothesis, that we live in a particular kind of simulation might be the best explanation um, for our existence, in that it solves, where nothing else can solve, a number of problems that we have not solved yet. And these are highly technical problems, but there are problems that exist in quantum mechanics, like um, how particles can have multiple contradictory properties at once, which quantum mechanics entails that things are in a superposition and a particle can be literally in two places at once or have two velocities at once. Um, how our measurement of quantum systems of these superpositions can make them collapse down into having one particular location or velocity um, uh, and, and none others at that point. And then when you stop observing it, it goes back to being in superposition uh, wave particle duality. Um, the, uh, uh, The non-locality of quantum phenomena that you've got when things are quantum entangled, um, you've got spooky action at a distance, where when one particle takes on a property, its paired particle will take on the opposite property, and it will always do so even if they're light years apart. Um, The fact that, and you can even go to relativity, you've got you've got relative in relativity, certain things like simultaneity are not are relative to reference frame and your observer and uh, and and the observer. and and even like problems like he says that like all the evidence seems to suggest like if you look at the philosophical and physical evidence it all seems to suggest that we are not free and yet we can't shake the feeling that we are free attempts to make sense of personal identity of what it means to be the same person over time all break down and yet we still can't shake the the the, the intuition that we are the same person over time so what what Arvan argues is that the hypothesis that we are in was called a peer-to-peer computer simulation answers all of these questions. A peer-to-peer computer simulation is one like Halo, where everybody has a disk and then their computer reads that disk, but the world that you're playing in is created by each individual computer computer reading that disk and creating a, a visual point of view for the, the the person and then the world is created when those those different computers communicate with each other and tell each other like what they're reading and what information that they're processing and where they think things are et cetera, et cetera, etc et etc mm. and that that's the world that's created okay and the idea here would be that um the universe as it were is just digital information it's two-dimensional digital information that's being processed interpreted by different processors and that's us right um and that the world that we live in is created as we process that information and so you know like colin says that our choices are dictated by the spirit outside this world yeah right um someone else is controlling us if this is right, if the P2P simulation hypothesis is right, and I'm not, and I should be clear, I am not doing it justice. You just need to go read his papers. It's Marcus Arvan, A-R-V-A-N. He's got three um, that, are, that are really good. Um, that if this is right, then your choices, what your body does in this world, is dictated by something that exists outside of it, which would be the processor that's processing the information and making the choices for what we do, and then obviously it's what experiences the the world, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But that your body's choices are dictated by something outside the world, and that more importantly, in line with Bandersnatch, right, it really is all digital. It is all a computer simulation. And like, this is like, if if we're living in a peer-to-peer simulation, this is why particles can have multiple contradictory properties at once, because... One computer can process, you know, I fired the bullet and the bullet's here, and another computer could say, well, I did the calculations and the bullet's there, and it can be two places at once literally in that way, and then even, like, this is why you get interference patterns whenever you deal with quantum mechanics, is... um, it seems that the locations, the different locations that the that the the particle has, interferes with itself, and it 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 affects where it ultimately ends up in the world. The same thing's going on here. The computers read off of each other and figure out what different calculations they made, and they adjust accordingly. Um, and I am not doing it justice at all. The point is is that the argument that he makes is that. This the, the the peer-to-peer simulation hypothesis can solve it can rectify quantum mechanics and relativity. Quantum mechanics treats everything not as particles, relativity treats everything as particles, they're incompatible in that way. The peer-to-peer simulation solves that. The peer-to-peer simulation solves why we have a sense of personal identity and free will. Um it solves um the measurement problem. Why is it that when we observe things, they go down, uh they, you know, they, they, they go, they collapse down into particular locales. Um, it's because the computer our, our processing is interpreting information and it makes it go down there and the other computers realize that we've made that measurement. And so they all update it and so they all put it in the same location. Um like it solves all of these problems. And so that's not to say that it is true, but the idea that like explanatory powerful is let, let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. Before we could make direct observations to to confirm the heliocentric versus the geocentric view, the idea that is the sun at the center of the solar system or is the earth at the center of the solar system, there were two competing models, each of which made exactly the same observations. They both predicted where you'd see the planets in the sky every night. Um, they, They made all the same predictions. There was no way to observationally distinguish between these two theories. We came to accept the heliocentric version, the heliocentric theory, before we could observationally confirm it, simply because it was the better explanation. It cohered to what scientists call the criteria of adequacy, um, or Ted Schick specifically. I use his book a lot in my classes. Um, it has wider scope, it's simpler, and it's more conservative. And we came to do that, even though we couldn't observationally confirm it, simply because it was the better of the two explanations. We cannot observationally confirm that we're living in a peer-to-peer computer simulation. That we, we can't observationally confirm that. But if it is the better explanation, and if it can explain all the quantum phenomena and rectify quantum mechanics and relativity and explain why we have a sense of free will and, and defend the idea that we actually do have free will and sense of personal identity and solve all these other philosophical and scientific problems when nothing else can, that's a really big like checkmark in its favor for thinking that if it's not true, it's at least not crazy. Um, and yeah, there are multiple scientists who suggest that, like that, the idea that our universe is just two dimensional information, essentially um, that we interpret is on solid scientific grounds. So if that's true, our world is not completely like Bandersnatch, but it's not entirely different either. Wow. There you go. How was that? Is that, is that
1: okay? <laughs> my mind is simultaneously blown and <laughs> destroyed. <laughs> that was absolutely amazing. Um, I have one last question for you. Um, if you could ask Charlie and Annabelle one question uh, about Black Mirror, what would it be?
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm afraid that my question would be the one that you asked me before. Which technology would you like to see, and which technology? <laughs> uh, are you most afraid of right um the other question i would i would like to ask him is would you write a forward for the second edition of my book um
1: (laughs) (laughs) very very good question
0: (laughs) um but I, i guess that i i think that the question i would ask would be to get at what you were um what you were asking before like to really dig and find out do you have a message here or is it are you really just telling stories or are you trying to make a point? And if so, what what kind of points do you think that you're you're trying to make? Um, and I think that that would be uh, I think that would be the question I would ask if I didn't ask them like, what technology do you most fear, and which one would you most like to be? Um, would you most like to be real? Um, and I, I think that you know, especially when he says that it's not a technological problem we have; it's a it's a human one, right? That he has human foibles in mind when he's writing the episode. So the episodes have to be, have to be some kind of commentary on that. But yeah, hopefully, hopefully that wasn't a disappointing answer. But- no, no, it was a
1: very good answer. <laughs> and that's it for today's episode of Black Mirror Cracked. Thank you again to Dr. David Carl Johnson. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was very informative. It has, as I said, completely blown my tiny mind. Um, where can our listeners uh, find you uh, on the y- wider internet
0: Well, just Google my name, David Kyle Johnson, uh, and you will find me in multiple places. I have a Facebook page that's under Dr. David Kyle Johnson. I post uh, articles of mine when I publish stuff. It goes up there. um, Kyle8425 on Twitter. I don't use Twitter that much, but if you want to find me there, I occasionally post articles there. If you're interested in my work, um, there's two places to go. First place to go is great courses. I have three courses on there, one on metaphysics, one's an intro to philosophy course. So one's called Exploring Metaphysics, one's called The Big Questions of Philosophy, the other one is called Sci-Fi Science Fiction as Philosophy. If you want to know what it's like to be in one of my courses, that's how you do it. I actually teach courses at King's based on all three of those courses. Uh, so it's like being in my classroom. Um if you're interested in my academic work, go to academia, Google my name and academia.edu, David Kyle Johnson, academia.edu. And I have a page there and I've posted pretty much everything I've ever published is up there. My journal articles, my pop culture articles, uh, conference papers, uh, and it's on a wide range of subjects. Uh, I do philosophy of religion. I do some metaphysics, stuff on free will. Um, there's, uh, uh I recently did something on medical misdiagnosis. Um, so, uh. Um, Yeah. uh, So that's that's where they can find me there. But basically just Google me and find me on Facebook, Twitter, academia.edu. And that's it
1: for this episode of Black Mirror Cracked. Thank you again to Dr. David Kyle Johnson for joining us. The book Black Mirror and Philosophy Dark Reflections is out now. So have a search for it on Amazon or have a look in our show notes. Black Mirror Cracked. We'll be right back.